Today's episode was recorded live in front of a sold-out audience at the MIT Museum in Cambridge, Massachusetts on September 18, 2023. Don't forget to check out our other episodes with guests like Jonathan Davis from Corn and Lamb of God's Randy Bly. And please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And there was a really fascinating research article that examined people in the first few months of the pandemic and found that horror fans had higher levels of psychological resilience and positive emotions in those first few months Mm. because perhaps they are used to being exposed to apocalyptic sorts of scenarios and understanding the whole process and having that sort of learning. To hell with good intentions. To hell is where I'll go But the devil makes exceptions For American psychos Oh my cause, I'll kill them all Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week we'll talk about a song by our guest artist, and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today we'll be speaking with Spencer Charnas, lead singer of the heavy metal band Ice Nine Kills. Every track on the band's two most recent albums, The Silver Scream and The Silver Scream 2, were inspired by well-known horror movies like Friday the 13th, Saw, and Nightmare on Elm Street. Their 2021 track, Hip to be Scared, pays homage to the film American Psycho, and in its video and live show production, Spencer appears as the film's lead character, Patrick Bateman, performing a dramatically choreographed axe murder. Also joining us is psychologist and science writer, Dr. Sarah Rose Cavanaugh. Dr. Cavanaugh is a professor at Simmons University in Boston, and her research focuses on the intersection of human emotion, motivation, and learning. Sarah has authored several essays related to the horror movie genre, including an article for Vice entitled, What Kind of Person Loves Scary Movies? And another entitled, Four Classroom Lessons from Haunted Houses. Like Spencer, Sarah is a horror movie fan who has found success incorporating her appreciation for the genre into her work. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Hip to be Scared, What Science Can Tell Us About Our Relationship to Recreational Fear. Hello, Spencer and Sarah. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello. Hi. Um, Look, I don't know that I've ever had the chance to talk to someone who has gone as deep with horror as you have, nor may I ever again. So I'd love to just try and get a sense of what it's like to be you watching a horror movie. What do you like to see in a horror movie? Anything you want to share? I think there are definitely different phases of my enjoyment of horror films. For instance, when I was young, it was pretty much sheer terror when I first saw Halloween or Friday the 13th. While I was watching it, I might not have been terrified, but you know, come three o'clock in the morning when I'm in my room and I think Michael Myers is under the bed and I'm screaming for mommy and daddy, that's when I got scared, you know? Right. It's all about later in the day, later in the night, 
when you're alone and all the, all the lights are off, that's when you know if a movie has really affected you. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning was really just about being scared. And then later on in life, I got so much more enjoyment of sharing these movies with my friends and seeing how it affected them. Because mm. um, I, was, I was always the kid that was showing my friends the bands that I liked, that I think that they should like. And same with the horror films, like you gotta see Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. This is when I was like nine or 10. Mm. And uh, definitely got my parents in trouble with my friend's parents, because my house was the, the house where you could see you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. You have a very permissive, <clears throat> mo permissive mother, I think. She's right over there, so let's <laughs> give it up for my mom. And, and now I'm, I'm so sort of desensitized to all the on-screen theatrical gore and guts that uh, it's mainly just kind of comfort food at this, at this mm. point. Is and that a result of having been on the inside, like now that you're making your own essentially mini horror movies? I think maybe subconsciously, right. but I've just seen, I've seen so much of it over the years that nothing really shocks me anymore mm -hmm. in terms of make-believe violence. Mm -hmm. If I want, if I'm going to be shocked, it's going to be something from the news, right? Because that's the stuff that that really affects me now. Yeah, of course. You know, when I first introduced this episode, I was alluding to this being, for some, a controversial topic. I don't believe this, but I think someone could construe what you do or horror films as celebrating violence or promoting it. How would you explain to that kind of person how what it is that you do is different from what they might think? Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. We're celebrating make-believe violence, mm -hmm. I think is what I would say. And... I think that if someone watches Friday the 13th and then says, hmm, that Jason guy, he's got some good ideas. I'm going to go and kill a bunch of horny teenagers in, <laughs> in the woods. I think that person was already probably predisposed to being a murderer. Sure. And that they were a, sort of a ticking time bomb and it was either going to be that movie or the person in front of them at 7-Eleven that was taking too long or someone who cut them off in traffic right. that set them off. But to me, horror films and, and films and, and entertainment in general has always just been an escape from reality. Mm. And I think that parents play an important role in making sure that if they are showing horror films to their kids at a young age especially, they need to make sure that they explain, hey, this is, this is make-believe, this is not really happening, mm. and that the real-life violence is not fun and is not meant to be celebrated. Yeah. Not for nothing, but like I look at it, your fans and like there's this great community and also having seen footage from the conference that you just put on, it just get the feeling like it's a feeling of joy. You know what I mean? The only thing, like the only point of reference I have for it was like my first exposure being a high school kid in the 90s and going to like Lollapalooza 93 and there was the mosh pit and understanding that people could express violence, but yet it wasn't backed with hate or anything. Like there was a community, people like if someone got injured, someone was taken care of, you know what I mean? So I actually, I wanted to show everybody because this is a recap from the conference. So can you tell us a little bit about that? About the clip or just the, the conference? The con in general? 
Look, I'm not gonna lie to you, I just showed the wrong fucking clip, okay? <laughs> the clip that I had in my mind had all of you guys at the conference, everyone was having a great time, people had like gory makeup, Yep. but it just seemed like everyone was really there together and there was a strong community. So just act as if that's what you just yeah. saw. There were only actually three murders at the convention, so. That's good, that's an improve, improvement upon last year. 10 at the last one, yeah. Okay, good. So but, yeah, tell us about it, please. Yeah, I think that in general, all the horror fans that I've had the pleasure of meeting over the last several years, whether it's at our convention or at our tours and meet and greets and at the Silver Scream Con, nicest people in the world, you know? Very soft-spoken, appreciative of getting to meet the people that they admire. Just like when, when I was a kid going to these conventions and getting to meet the guy that played Jason or the guy who played Michael Myers. And I've never seen a horror fan or an Ice Nine Kills fan act violent, you know, unless it was like in the mosh pit. And as you were saying, everyone picks each other up. The only violence I saw at the convention was a security guard at the Lynn Memorial Auditorium, like, attack our photographer. Mm. So, and he wasn't a horror fan. Like an odd target. Yeah, yeah. Just a little guy with glasses, and he went to his throat. So, I don't think that guy was a horror fan, but right. he had some rage. Yeah. What, what is your favorite horror film? It's like picking a favorite toe. I've got so many. Yeah. 20. Well, 10. Well, tw I've got, got 20. Time. I don't... You have 10? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's hard for me. You know, I obviously love the... Sort of Mount Rushmore, the genre, the Michaels, Jason's, Friday the 13th, mm -hmm. Halloween. But there are some deeper cuts that I like mm -hmm. that are lesser known, like Silent Night, Deadly Night, those sort of films. But there's just too many to go through. Okay. But I'm, I'm basically a big 80s slasher guy. Okay, so there, and that was another question I had for both of you, because as I'd said, Sarah is also a fan. And so if we were to subcategorize into different subgenres, slasher is one of them. And Sarah had said to me she was more of a fan of the kind of psychological terror rather than, I quote, body envelope violations. <laughs> I've never heard of that term. Yeah, it's colorful. So I assume that means gore. So first let me ask you, how would you define the psychological terror films that you're a fan of? Right, so I was talking about an essay by Lincoln Michelle, who's a wonderful author, and he is an author on the differences between horror and terror. And so horror is the more kind of gory, you know, violent, you know, things like that. And terror's more the jump scare, the kind of creeping unease, kind of the ghost stories. Mm -hmm. And that's my genre of horror. I like It Follows and Jordan mm. Peele and those okay. sorts of movies. Have you seen the Jordan Peele movies? I have. Yeah. <laughs> I really like Get Out. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Edit out that pause if you can. Yeah, no, done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was my favorite among them. Oh, definitely. You know? Elevated horror is the term that, that I hear thrown around a lot. Because it's, it's got most... like an intellectual component yeah. to it or something? Okay. I just like a bunch of kids being slaughtered in the woods. It's not really <laughs> sophisticated. Well, so Midsummer would check off that box. I like that one. Yeah. More so than that? Hereditary. My friend Diana, who's in the audience, said I couldn't handle it. Really? Where is she? Yeah. Point at her. There she is. She can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, that one's interesting because it's all pretty much all daylight. Yes. Mm -hmm. Daylight horror is interesting. That's a whole different subgenre, I think. If you can make something scary without the dark. 
Can you suggest, this is just for my own personal interest, a couple other daylight? I would say Devil's Rejects is a daylight horror movie for, uh, for a majority of it, the Rob okay. Zombie one. Okay, okay. Any others you can think of? I was thinking It Follows, but that has some night scenes too. Jaws? Like a lot of it's during the day. Oh, Jaws. Jaws? Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. some night scenes, but predominantly it's in, it's in mm -hmm. the daylight. Okay. Yeah. Your experience of making these music videos, right, that have these nods to these other horror films, are there any interesting tidbits you could share with our listeners about what it's like to be behind the curtain? You know, with the makeup, special effects, things that surprised you or legitimately kind of freaked you out or looked too fake or what? I think in general it's just surreal to be a fan of these films that we're paying homage to and then turn around and I'm on the set at Patrick Bateman's house, mm. you know, his apartment. I think being a fan of Friday the 13th and then filming a music video paying homage to to Jason and, and being in a camp that's abandoned. So the um, surroundings are always sort of put me in awe of, wow, I feel like I'm in my favorite horror movie. Mm. Um, but some interesting things for me, we like to do cameos and Easter eggs for our fans. Mm -hmm. So one of the most interesting ones I think we did was we had a song called Funeral Derangements, which is an homage to Pet Cemetery. Mm. And if anyone's seen that particular film, the little boy um, Gage, in one of the most traumatizing scenes I've ever seen, gets hit by a 18-wheeler, mm -hmm. little tiny boy. And even seeing it at my age now still traumatizes me. Mm. And I thought it would be really interesting to get that actor who played the little boy in Pet Cemetery, the little Gage, to play the truck driver oh, nice. in our music video that hits Gage, so essentially was killing his own character. Yeah. So to be on set and, and to have that actor there that was involved in the original mm. in that respect was, was so interesting to me. Well, you do a lot of script flipping, like in the American Psycho, rather than murdering women, the, the, the main kill is like a, a co-worker or something, right? Well, we killed a lot of women in that one too, but yeah. um, we kill as many men. We're equal opportunist murderers. murderers. Yeah, okay, good for you. Um, <laughs> I want to know through a psychologist's lens, anything that we've been talking about thus far, what's your take on it? Sure. I, I hear lots of reasons uh, why people like horror movies uh, that Spencer was talking about. So part of it's physiology, and people who enjoy horror and enjoy it more than people who don't tend to get to the sweet spot of just enough arousal, like heart rate and, and skin sweating, and not go too far. So they're not all the way terrified out of their minds, but they're a little aroused, and that can be very satisfying to a certain type of person. And the social is so important. We don't tend to go to see horror movies alone. We don't go to haunted houses alone for the most part. We go with our partners, with our social others, our friends, and that is a key part of the experience. 
And I think another big aspect of why certain people enjoy horror is that it allows you to face some of our greatest fears mm. in a safe setting that, again, is social. And then you come back from it and you go out for drinks and you laugh and you're, you're completely safe. And so there's a real reassurance there, uh, that comparison between getting really scared and then being safe again, mm. I think is very satisfying. That, that brings up an interesting thing for me because like when I watch horror, there's this fine line between like when I'm legitimately terrified and then sometimes I'm laughing. Mm -hmm. you know? So what do you make of that, like these different emotional responses? to violence. Right. Well, they're all mixed together, right? Mm. And there's some there's some research that shows that when someone's really uncomfortable, they and the more that they do these kind of unconscious little smiles, the actually better they'll feel after. And so if you're more likely to kind of wince and kind of have that insertion of positive emotion with the negative emotion, mm. that can be more resilient. You definitely touched on on something that's interesting. Um, the, the connection between comedy and horror and having that safe scare, as you put it, and being able to see a terrifying scene and then in the next scene, you're laughing uncontrollably. Mm. And I think some of the most effective horror movies balance that horror with the comedy, like American Psycho, yep. like Scream. Um, and I think those tend to be some of my, my favorite ones mm -hmm. because it's nice to be as you said, sort of scared and jolted and aroused in a way, and then have that dichotomy of the complete different reaction. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of what we're talking about in that Vice article that I'd mentioned, you're citing research from a lab in Denmark mm -hmm. that studies recreational fear, which is exactly what it sounds like. Can you unpack for us a little bit what they study? Absolutely. And this is some of my favorite research. Psychologists are well known for just bringing undergraduates into the laboratory at their universities and studying them as if they are the only sample in the world. And this, if you're really interested in finding out why do people want to be scared, why are people willing to pay money to be scared, why not go somewhere like a haunted house <laughs> where people are actually paying money to be scared. And so they did real life examinations of people's heart rate and enjoyment and fear while they're running around being chased by pigmen and zombies. And they were able to take their heart rate and they were able to look at big changes in heart rate, uh, those large scale changes in heart rate, and then also the more minor fluctuations where you get a little bit activated. And this is what they were talking about with self-reported fear and enjoyment, that kind of U-shape. We don't actually like to be terrified out of our minds. We want to be a little bit terrified. Mm. And we also don't want to be bored. And so there was this kind of curvilinear relationship there. Mm -hmm. And fear related to those big changes in heart rate. So the more big changes in heart rate you had, the more afraid you were. But those small scale heart rate changes where your heart would just flutter a little bit, that was what showed this U-shaped relationship, this mm. sweet spot where okay. you wanted a little bit of arousal, but not too much. Are these guys under contract with horror movie producers, like how to scare people more, or is it just out of pure interest? I would have to look that up. It wouldn't surprise me because there is an obvious possible financial relationship there. Yeah, right. <laughs> if they wanted to do some consulting work. Yeah. And they definitely seemed aimed at figuring out how to tailor Right. Fears. So because you also you wrote another article that was classroom lessons about haunted house. What was mm -hmm. that about? 
That's about the fact that I think that we all need a little bit of this arousal. We all need to face our fears. And so a lot of my research is on emotion regulation or how we can manage or change our own emotions and how that relates to depression and anxiety. And I think that teachers need to help their students face some of their classroom fears, like presentations, mm. and a lot of learning can be scary. Okay. In terms of like kind of just the, the, the safe space that you mm -hmm. refer to, I was thinking about the idea of wish fulfillment in horror movies. And I don't know if that's like a, a, a psychological concept or one just kind of as like a horror movie fan that either of you can speak to. But if is it is it more about because like we have our own feelings of rage that we want to have like a valve released or is it like we're just curious about the forbidden? you know, and we want to kind of play with that a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, well, for my types of horror that I like, I think it's less about rage and more about anxiety. And I think that there is something, again, reassuring that we're trying to face what we're really afraid of anyway and work through those fears in a safe setting. Mm. And so we're all afraid of losing our loved ones, right, in horrifying ways, and that's something that happens in horror movies. People get plucked off one by one. And I think, again, having that experience of feeling like that's happening, and then it actually isn't, and I think that that is what can be rewarding, less so the violence. Mm. But I don't like the violent ones, so maybe you have insights on that. <laughs> I think that's another parallel between horror movies, violent horror movies, and, and heavy metal music. I think there is, it's potentially subconscious, maybe it's conscious, it's a way of sort of getting out your demons, screaming with, you know, a bunch of your friends in the audience to your favorite band, or even for me, screaming on stage. It's sort of a safe way to get out some of your rage. You know, we always say with, with our music, like, use aggressive music as um, an outlet for your demons, not a blueprint for your actions. Mm. And I think that horror movies also serve the same purpose. It's sort of that safe way of getting out some of those feelings you have by acting it out in your mind and seeing it on the screen or screaming with your favorite band rather than going and killing a bunch of people. So I think it, it actually serves an important purpose. How do you not lose your voice? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Deal I mean, with the devil. Yeah. Honey. yeah. I mean, that's just bananas that you can sing the way that you do and do it night after night. I'm not that good. I think basically... He is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> We've all gathered here to really prop you up. Yeah. Walk out of here with your head held high. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I shut up a lot during the day. Vocal okay. rest is very important. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay, quick pivot. Talk to me about tickling. Tinkling? <laughs> tickling. We could talk about tinkling. tinkling. We're talking about tickling. Does anyone like to be tickled? People hate being tickled, right? But tickling is a very strange thing, and I think that it relates to play, and it relates a little bit to all of these things that we're talking about, because it's a little bit violent, right? And it's a little bit unexpected. And we... we tickle young children, right? These three, four-year-olds, their grandfather or their parent, like all of a sudden you like do little claws, right? And you chase them, you're, mm. you're this warm caretaker and all of a sudden you're this animal who's going to attack them. But then at the very last minute, it turns into a tickle. And so again, the safety, the like fear, but safety. Mm. 
And I think that so much a play, an early play, I think they talked about this a little bit in the end of the recreational fear video with the little girl on the slide. Yeah. So much a play in early childhood is violent, right? Mm -hmm. and, and is scary. It's about being tackled and pushed over and held captive and all of these sorts of themes. I think that from a very early age, we're toying with things that we're afraid of. Okay. Have they done studies on tickling? Uh, I know. I mean, because you just broke it down in a way that I'd never <laughs> heard it. Um, I know about some some research articles on why you can't tickle yourself, but that's a different phenomenon. <laughs> well, please, I want to know about that. Oh. <laughs> well, it's a it's a brain phenomenon because your brain actually subtracts some of the sensations that you do to yourself, mm. and so it's it's less intense when you touch yourself because your brain's making a prediction about what that touch is going to feel like and subtracting some of that off. Okay. So I've seen that footage of where they uh, like make a model. This is maybe something different or tangentially related. You, you have someone put their left arm under the table and you put a prosthetic one there that mm -hmm. looks like their left hand and you can start to tickle it and they start to experience the sensation or something like that. Yes, I do, I do this to my students and they will suddenly feel like they have a third arm, which is a very <laughs> upsetting experience for some people. Okay, what's the the context in which you're doing that to your students? <laughs> um, in a neuroscience class, because we're, okay. we're talking about how, mu how much of the visual system and the other okay. systems interact, yeah. Okay, so while we're on the topic of your work, Sarah's book, it's got a great title, obviously, and, and a relevant one, and this is actually related to your work more specifically, so please tell us about it a little bit. Oh, sure. So it's a little bit what I was talking about before with it being necessary for mental health for us to face our fears and to grapple with them rather than avoid them. And so in the book, I kind of dig into the youth mental health crisis and how educators should respond to that. And it's a lot about facing our fears, um, having these experiences in safe settings where we're not going to be actually hurt, but we're allowed to play. Mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you something in, similar to what I'd asked Spencer to speak to, because as a fan, are you able to separate what you do professionally from your experience as a fan? I just saw Talk To Me. Have you guys seen Talk To Me? Anyone seen Talk To Me? Spoiler alert, it deals with like these teens being possessed and in some cases driven to commit suicide. So like in a situation like that, what's your experience like through your lens as a psychologist? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that some of those movies, we do have to be careful about who's watching them um, mm. because there is the possibility that talking um, and, and viewing some of material related to suicide and someone who is, is very vulnerable to that uh, could be harmful. So I think that that, back to what we were talking about in the beginning, is definitely a conversation with parents. But I think that it, again, is toying out not just our own fears, but our cultural fears. And so I think that a lot of horror is also about what our current society is facing and what it is grappling with. And I think Smile is another horror movie that had a similar kind of theme mm. with the possession and the suicide. And I think it's not a coincidence that we've had a couple of these movies. I think that culturally, we are grappling with a mental health crisis and elevations in, in self-harm mm. and suicide. And I think that we're working it out through our art. Mm. Your experience watching horror movies, did that change after having a child? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, after I had my first daughter, I couldn't even watch Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about like what's in your book about 
the youth mental health crisis? Sure. I think that a lot of it is so complex because if you look at statistics, it may not be specific to youth that there's elevations in mental health struggles across the spectrum. I think that our youth, though, are facing a lot of challenges that, on the one hand, we've always faced, right? Youth have always faced problems with uncertainty, thinking about the future, having to figure out your life path, um, struggles with peers, but now we also have the rise of white supremacy and we have climate change and we have global pandemic and I think that there's so many more challenges facing contemporary youth that they have to face and work through that it's not terribly surprising that we're in this situation where they're struggling more. And I think, again, the path out is going to be safe settings but challenge in those safe settings and working together with adults who can help them. How old were you when you started Ice Nine Kills? 14. So, am I asking, and so you're just, I can't do the math. How, how old are you now? 37. So. It's been a while. Yeah. How do you connect with that, um, with that version of yourself that like first, you know, started making this music? I mean, I realize that you guys have progressed and advanced and evolved, but like, do you still connect to that person and like any of the angst perhaps, knowing nothing about your experience? I think up? I just never wanted a real job. Yeah. <laughs> and that's never changed. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that there was always a desire to try to entertain people. Mm -hmm. And I think that the influence of of those bands that I liked when I was a little kid and those movies that I was drawn to growing up, that's what those did for me. Those entertained people. And uh, that, that sort of bug never really left me. Mm. When did you have the idea to do the Silver Scream series? Or how did, what was the, the origin story of that? So when we started the band, we were more of a typical rock band, punk band. Mm. Uh, where we wrote songs about our own experiences. And uh, after several years, we realized that my experiences weren't really that interesting. So I thought that the great authors and, and uh, the great directors and uh, screenwriters had more interesting stories than I did. Mm. So I always sort of looked at it like when a great book is developed by someone like Stanley Kubrick, who takes... Stephen King's book, and Stephen King might not agree with this one. He doesn't like that Famously, movie. Yeah. Um, and sort of putting your own spin on these great stories. Uh, we first did a sort of concept album with every trick in the book, which was, I believe, 2015, maybe. And that was just an album where all the songs were based on great works of literature. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to really connect with our fans. Mm. And it was also sort of an interesting way to market the band. You know, people were talking about us because we were a band that did this. You know, we made stories, mm. of, made songs rather about these great stories. And then it seemed like the natural progression to move it towards movies because I don't know how to read. <laughs> no, <laughs> there, but, it yeah, there it is. Here it is. Think yeah. for science, folks. And uh, I'm speaking at MIT, which is odd. Because yeah. This is, well, you, we told you, Kate, he gets an honorary degree, right? Okay. I appreciate that. Um, what's next for you guys? I can't say. I have to kill you. I, I expected that. Yeah. 
Uh, we're going to be touring for a long time, mm-hmm. but uh, we're, we're starting to work on new music as well. Is it a Silver Scream 3? That's the million dollar question. Okay, all right. I want to ask... It will be in 3D, though, if we do it. Oh, good. Um, Sarah, you told me something I hadn't heard about this, and this is more reserved for the realm of the humanities. In my opinion, there's not much that separates the way that people work in either side of academia, the humanities or hard sciences. Um, But you talked a little bit about monster theory. So what can you tell us about that? Well, it connects a lot to what Spencer was just talking about and about his series because it's really from the world of literature and literary analysis and and looking toward those great books that we've had. And so monster theory really examines what monsters can tell us and that monsters are symbols of a culture's concerns and fears, what they consider self versus other, uh, what our feelings are about the human condition, about mortality. And so if you look at a culture's monsters, then you can understand a lot about that culture and a lot about what we're really fearing. What is, you just said self versus other. Mm-hmm. What, tell us more about that. Well, monsters, if you think about what makes a monster a monster, they are usually something that a society considers abnormal in some way. They uh. challenge our categories and they challenge our sense of what we want people to be. And so they're very often outsiders, right? If you think about Frankenstein or um, vampires, and they, they kind of lurk on the edges of society and they aren't quite part of it. Okay. Had you ever heard of monster theory? No, I haven't. But that makes sense. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so we have a few minutes. I also, um, both of our guests have been generous enough to allow time for some Q&A if you guys have questions. But before we do that, um, do you guys have any more questions for one another? Yes, what is your favorite horror novel? I'd have to say American Psycho. I'm so predictable. <laughs> How about you? Um, I'm a big fan of Stephen King, uh, and so it was lovely to hear that. What's your favorite Stephen King novel? I think his best is The Shining, but it was very pivotal in my, like, it was my first horror novel, I think, and it was the first book of Stephen King's that I was allowed to read, so I have a soft spot. That's a big one. It's a long one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, so why don't we, I guess I, I have no idea how to organize this, just Come down here, form a line, anyone who wants to ask questions for either of our guests. Ideally related to what we're talking about, to horror. So um, don't be shy. Hello. I like your jacket. Wow. Thank you. I was inspired by an absolute genius. Oh, stop it. (laughs) Hi, my name's Raul. And uh, I want to talk about, like, real quickly about the Fear Lab because my 10-year-old niece is developing her own sort of thing. Like, I want to see how scared I can get in a couple of movies. So she is completely insane and decided to watch It Chapter 1 and 2 by herself, single-handedly. Then at the end was like, Pennywise is weak. All I got to do is be, like, ugly, what was it? Ugly, decrepit, doo-doo, monkey head, something like that. And it, it's just more about, like, the curiosity of, like, kids, like, going into, like, these movies. And it's like, oh, I want to see what's so scary about it. Like, just last week, she was bragging about watching Nightmare on Elm Street. 
And I want to know your guys' insight on, like, what drives a kid to, like, want to be out there to be feared. You know, kind of like the whole tickle thing. <laughs> sure. There's actually a whole other body of research on something called morbid curiosity. And I think kids, a lot of kids have a lot of morbid curiosity. They just want to see what you don't want them to see. They want to explore kind of the unknown and, be, and feel brave. Right? And so much about being a child is controlled for you and you aren't your own agent acting on the world and probably exposing themselves to these sorts of things and seeing that they can handle it is, is rewarding for that reason. Yeah, it's sort of the forbidden fruit. I feel like horror is the forbidden fruit and heavy metal bands, anything that's subversive. So I think it kind of makes younger kids feel like a badass <laughs> if they can watch those movies and walk away unscathed. All right, thank you. Check out part two of this episode to hear the Q&A portion of the program in its entirety. Go to ice9kills.com to find out about their tour with Metallica, forthcoming novel, and to enjoy their entire videography in all its gory. Sarah's book, Mind Over Monsters, Supporting Youth Mental Health with Compassionate Challenge, can be purchased through her website, sarahrosecav.com. Com. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, social media manager is Bailey Constis, and digital producer is Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Chris Nilsson, Ian Kasky, Mike Mowry, Anna Greenhall, Lisa Shin, Karina McKenzie, John and Kelly Dance, Kate Wilson, Keelan Caldwell, and the Recreational Fear Lab in Denmark. If you liked today's episode, the best way you can support us is to give us a review, tell a friend about the show, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.